You ever watch, did, I don't even know if this show's still on. Anybody ever watch Extreme Makeover Home Edition? Is it still on? They don't do that anymore? Reruns? Okay. Um, uh, what, a, what a great show. Uh, um, uh, you know, it's kind of a, a lot of those stories, if, if, as I recall, the ones I've seen, a lot of those people had let their homes deteriorate while they were taking care of somebody else or some other need, right? Remember that, that kind of deal? Um, what we looked at last week in the opening verses, or the first 11 verses or so of Haggai, was the exact opposite thing. Uh, they had not taken care of what they needed to take care of, but they had taken care of their ho own homes. They hadn't particularly taken care of um, uh, the Lord's house. And so Haggai challenges them on that. And so today, we're going we're gonna to talk about Haggai as he continues to encourage the people, but with a different focus to think of this kind of extreme makeover idea. Now, we're going to begin today with verse 12. Um, well, actually, we ended with verse 12 last time. We'll start with, with verse 13 today. The year is still 520 B.C., um, and we're going to kind of answer the question after the, the challenge of last week uh, that they had uh, from Haggai. What did they do with it? We're going to try to answer that question today. Now, the book of Haggai, as we said last week, is set in the period of Persian dominance, uh, which began with the rise of Cyrus in 539 B.C. Uh, Persian expansion to the west was eventually kind of checked and eventually halted completely by the defeats at the uh, by their defeat at the Battle of Marathon in 490 BC and the Battle of Salamis in 479 BC. Um, uh, if you read Ezra 6 and Ezra 7, those battles happen kind of within that historical context. The Book of Esther is set within that. So if you if, if uh, any of you ladies or certainly I love the Book of Esther. If you read in that book, you're reading about this time of Persian dominance as it's coming kind of closer towards its end. Well, Persia was overthrown by Alexander the Great in 330 or so B.C. And um, so the existence of Persia as a superpower uh, in the ancient Near East only lasted a little less than a couple hundred years. Her rise and her collapse was foreseen 30 years prior to the ministry of Haggai. And so God is using all this historical time to comfort and bring um, uh, help and protection to his people, even including uh, the moving back uh, to, the, to uh, the, the precincts around Jerusalem, as was directed by, um, uh, by King Cyrus and Darius and those who, who allowed them to go back. Now, I want us to start in chapter 1, in verse 13, okay? And we're going to read, um, actually, we'll start at 12, and then we'll read on through 15. Now, Bob, I'm going to prevail on you, but if you want to skip any of those names, you can. Zerubbabel, Shelatiel, Joshua, Jehozadak, all those guys are in there. Now, when you get to them, you can just kind of skip them. So 12 and go down to 15 if you don't mind. Okay, now, um, we're going to answer the question of what they did with Haggai's message. Haggai's message was last time you've waited 16 years to get done what God asked you to do, and in the meantime, you've remodeled your own home four times. Okay, what are you going to do with God's temple? He's got, we've got to re return to the worship of the Lord your God, and, um, and that can't be done as long as the, the temple lays in rubble. 
So they set the foundation, you remember? Spent two years setting the foundation, 18 years before. But in year two, they just stopped. They just got stuck. And they started taking care of their own needs. All right? Now, the question remains then, what did they do with this? And the answer is good. Uh, look at verse 5 and verse 7. We looked at them a little bit last week. He says to them, consider your ways in verse 5. He says it again in verse 7. Consider your ways. Maybe, maybe your um, version says something a, a little different. But the idea here in the original language is, set your heart upon, the Lord says, your way. And... What I want you to know is that according to um, uh, verse 12 and 13 here, uh, certainly verse 12, and if you look again, the, the same word is used um, uh, down in about verse 14, the remnant obeyed. Now, we've got to deal a little bit about with that idea of the remnant, okay? The remnant, this true remnant of the people of God. Now, i got to admit something. My house, some of you have been there is draped by remnants, okay? In fact, the uh, cushions on the kitchen dinette are done with remnants. Every, every yard of curtains in my house is made with a remnant. Now, let's explain what a remnant is, okay? Um, a remnant is really a leftover piece of something, right? Uh, maybe you've uh, been on hard economic times, and you, and you took, you went to a remnant carpeting store or whatever, and you and you, you, you maybe put carpet in a, in a bathroom or a small bedroom or something with a remnant. Well, um, what you've got to know is that a remnant in and of itself is usually not worth a whole lot. But frankly, in my home, remnants in the hands. Uh, Miss Rhonda did really nicely, thank you. In fact, she took, you know, what budget I put her on, went and bought a bunch of, uh, went and bought a bunch of this wonderful fabric that was all remnants, and she uh, kind of did her deal around. Um, uh, did you use Mom's sewing machine or yours? Both. I figured you used both. And when you walk in, it looks. It looks like a professional decorator's been there, right? Because the remnant was placed in the hands of somebody who knew what to do with it, right? What did the remnant do here in the hands of God? They began to obey. That's interesting here, I think. They didn't, they finally recognized that they didn't just return they didn't just survive to return to the land, but to the Lord. They didn't just come back home. They came back home to the Lord. Would somebody kind of go over to Isaiah 46 and read verse 3? It kind of talks a little bit about this returning. Isaiah 46 verse 3. Somebody got it? So there's this group, he's saying, there's always been a group. There's always been a people. There's always been a remnant of God's people. And this remnant, 50,000 or so, get to come back. But they finally recognize, through the work of, of, of Zechariah and Haggai and, and others, that they're not back just to come back home. 
they're coming back home to the Lord. Now, there's some, I hope you'll stick with me for a few minutes here. There's, the next little section is a little, little hard to grasp, but, but, but you, you guys are much smarter than me, so if I can get it, I know you can. Um, um, God's words are going to change here from a rebuke in the first 12 verses to now an encouragement, okay? He's happy with what he sees them do. They get to work, okay? So his words kind of turn uh, to an encouragement. Let me give you an illustration of it. Look at 1, 2. Okay, then look at the second verse. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says. Okay, he's quoting them as those guys over there. Now look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shelatiel, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of their God. There's an identification here that's taken place, right? It's gone from being this people to God really referring to them as my people. Isn't that wonderful? It's not just those guys over there. It's this, this is my people. They've always been his people. But he really begins to identify with them here because of their obedience. Now, um, uh, it's interesting, as, as we talk about the timing here, we were in somewhere in mid-August last, um, when it talks about the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came. Well, then by the time we get down to verse 14, uh, another date has been produced. And the date here, um, um, on the 24th day of the sixth month of the second year of Darius the king. So literally, if you kind of compare... With where we were, we were I, I forgot the date in August, but we're now at September 21st, 520 B.C. It's been less than a month, and they've gotten to work. Isn't that encouraging? And so God begins to encourage them and uh, kind of lift them up in this. There's been a lapse of less than a month. Now, um, what they've got to deal with here is what you and I also have to deal with is to guard against being indifferent to the word of God. They were not. Stan, you'll remember this story, I bet. I told it 20 years ago, and you remind me of it every once in a while, frankly. Uh, it was kind of one of those trips like Rhonda and I made to Michigan, except uh, the only difference is I was in Kentucky, and my folks were here, and Mom came to see us. Mom and Dad came to see us. And it was, you know, the kids were six or seven or something like that. And, and we were doing the typical wrangling between parents and children. And, and um, my mom, after she gets home, writes the kids a letter. Now, she probably put money in it. I don't know. She probably put something in it. She was always sending something. But wrote them a letter. And she was observing as, she, as, as the kids were kind of all wrangling through the stuff that young families wrangle through. She was noticing that if we would tell them to do something, they didn't do it just automatically. And so she writes them back and quotes some scripture. You know, how do you like grandmothers and can quote scripture? But she quotes scripture. She says, really, kids, you need to come to terms with the fact that real obedience is immediate. Real obedience is immediate. That's what goes in your next blank. The truth is, God was encouraged because they had captured the word of God from Haggai. And they had begun pretty immediately to get work setting things right. There is 
all, kind of all of a sudden, and I hate to say it that way, but it's kind of more or less true, there's an obedient fear that they catch. They hadn't had that for 16 years. And now, this fear of the Lord, now I'm not talking about cowering in fear, not, but just they recognize, you know what, we haven't done what we're supposed to do, and we better get after it. There's this obedient fear that they begin to live in, and it makes a huge difference here. They have no longer, they went for 16 years or so at being indifferent to the Word of God, and now they're not. What I've got to do is guard against a sense in my life of an indifference to the Word of God. Can I possibly read the Word of God in the morning and say, oh, that was nice, close, close its pages and, and forget about it the rest of the day? James says that's like going to the mirror and forgetting what you look like. Because the Word of God talks to me about who I really am. Okay, now let's go on in the story over to chapter 2. And I want somebody, if you would, to read the first nine verses of chapter 2. We're going to see what they did. Now there's still, we've got to do the Zerubbabel's and the Shelateels and the Jehoshadaks. And, okay, so to just kind of, whoever reads it, to kind of slip by them. Uh, by the way, why, uh, the reason he's called Zerubbabel is because he's trying to keep him out of Zerubbabel. Okay, so that, that's the deal. All right, somebody read the verse, first nine verses of Haggai 2. Thank you, Steve. Now, I'm going to ask somebody, if you will, to go to Ezra 3, and I'm going to ask somebody to read 10 down to 13, and you're going to need to go a good half inch or so back to the left. Ezra 3, 10 through 13. We're going to get to that in a minute. Who will get that? And I'll set it up, and then we'll go to it. Who will do that? Somebody. Sally, thank you. Okay, now, um, we are now, according to... It's interesting how they date this. It's, it's always dated, which... Um, gives us a wonderful historical perspective and a chronological perspective. It's now October 17th in the year 520. Same year, okay? Remember the word of the Lord came to Haggai in August. In September, the people start the work. Now it's the 17th of October, another month or so, and they begin to kind of start kind of measuring things and bring the materials in. They're starting the work, but they begin to think about and, and the Lord actually kind of leads them down this path, um, um, interestingly. And, and this is probably the trickiest part of this, but it's the most beautiful part of this passage, I think. The Lord leads them um, to begin to think about the original temple built in 586. Okay, I'm sorry, it was built, oh, about in 1000 or so B.C., and it was destroyed in 586 when, uh, when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. So literally, in a historical perspective, 66 years ago, there was a temple, and it was Solomon's temple in all of its splendor and grandeur. What is going on as we begin chapter 2, as they start working, start putting the rafters up for the new temple? They realize that the new building doesn't quite measure up to the old one. You ever been kind of disappointed in your own work? You ever come to a place where you thought, you know, my contribution to this really doesn't matter all that much. I mean, what I'm doing really doesn't matter, does it? 
And, and they have a bit of a crisis here. Now, Sally, if you've looked ahead, you know where I'm going with this. Uh, Ezra 3, and I'm going to have you read 10 down through 13. Listen how extreme their emotion is as they begin to contemplate the rebuilding of the temple. Uh, Ezra, I think, did I tell you? Ezra 3, and I'm going to have you read 10 down through 13. I want, to, I want you to catch what's going on here. There were those in this crowd, part of the rebuilding project, who remembered 66 years before. They remembered the glory of Solomon's temple. And there are those on a day of rejoicing and celebrating as they cast the foundation for the temple. There are those who are sobbing uncontrollably. It's loud crying. Why? Because the comparison is just not going to measure up. In fact, um, Sally, I love what you read there because it says that you really couldn't tell. It was so noisy that you couldn't distinguish those who were crying from those who were shouting and rejoicing. It was just a cacophony of noise. Those two things intermingled. Isn't that interesting? And, and the, the weeping that took place did so because they were so discouraged by the work of their hands in comparison to the grandeur of the Temple of Solomon. Now, I'm going to use a word here that I'm not sure is appropriate, but it's the best one I could come up with. This is almost a trick. It's almost, a tr it's almost a ruse. It's almost a trick. And I want you to see, hang on to that thought. They're, they're, they're a little discouraged about their own work because it's not going to measure up to, to the former temple. And the, and the Lord has really, in some ways, is kind of holding them in this moment. And it's almost a trick because he's going to show them something far more wonderful than anything they've ever seen. Okay? And he'll do that with you too, by the way. He will catch you in a, in a down moment and say... Why don't you just hang on a little bit? <laughs> I'm going to show you something unlike anything you have ever seen in your life. Now, so it's clear that physically this new temple is not going to measure up. There's no comparison. Um, but he, he asked him to hang in there. Look at verse 14 again. Ask him to hang in there. And he says, Haggai says, so is this people and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hands. And what, um, Sorry. Wrong verse. Um, he says, take courage. For I, take courage. He said, I better not leave the next phrase out. I'm, I'm trying to just get to the verbs here. Take courage and work. Take courage and work. Don't be afraid and work. Take courage and work. Why? Verse four. Because I'm with you. Because I'm with you. Now, and I'm going to be with you, he says. Be strong, take courage, and work. I'm going to be with you. Now, I begin to think a little bit as I read verse 5 this week. I begin to think about uh, this promise that he makes in verse 5 and how this promise has changed uh, since those days. God has sent his spirit in the past. By the way, in verse, thir in, in verse um, uh, 5 here, he, he uh, talks about um, when you came out of Egypt. Did any of them actually come out of Egypt? No, that was generations before, right? They didn't really come out of Egypt. But he 
talks about their people coming out of Egypt. And this could be a bit of a metaphor, <clears throat> excuse me, of coming out of Babylon. There were those who made that trip, certainly the 50,000 who made that trip from Babylon back to Jerusalem. So he could be making reference there, but he's talking here about the Spirit of God. And I put several references here. Exodus 31, Judges 6, Judges 15. God sent his Spirit to them in the past. And he's going to say to them, not only will I again, but my Spirit and my presence is with you now. Now, years ago, I read a, a simple theology book. Any of us could read it and understand it. It's called Christianity 101. It's a, to me, it's a, a, a fairly a modern-day classic written by uh, Dr. Gilbert Bilzekian, who uh, helped to organize uh, Willow Creek Church. He was kind of the, the mastermind between, behind Willow Creek Church in um, South Barrington, Illinois. Well, Dr. B, in, in his work, begins to talk about the work of the Spirit of God in your life. And what he's going to say here, and what prompts this question that I ask here, is since Pentecost, the Spirit is more involved in your life than he was in theirs. Since Pentecost, you could argue that you have more of God's Spirit residing within you than David did in all the wonderful things that he accomplished. Since Pentecost, you have the Holy Spirit with you 24-7, 365, inside you. You don't have to call for him and ask for him. He's going to be there because you're a child of his son. And so you have constant potential, constant communion with the Spirit of God, just like the Lord Jesus had when he walked the planet. And Dr. B is going to say there has been this progressively personalizing of the Holy Spirit through the Old Testament. He was here and there. He acted here and he acted there and he acted there. In the New Testament, he was present in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But since Pentecost, he's inside you. So what could I accomplish if I really grasp the idea that the Holy Spirit is at work within me how much fear could I abate in the work that I'm trying to do if I really recognized that I don't need to be afraid of any of this because the Spirit is alive and well within me I challenge you with that thought now track with me here for the next couple of verses I'm going to read verse 6 and 7 again for thus saith the Lord of hosts, once more, <laughs> once more, in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I'll shake all the nations. And they'll come with the wealth of all the nations and I'll fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. Here, see the promise? Now, I'll unpack that in just a minute, but let's talk about this for a minute. Haggai now pictures a shaking that will be worldwide in, his impact, in its impact. Okay? This is nothing anywhere close to Elvis Presley being all shook up. Okay? <coughs> Baby, mama, mama. You know, none of that. This is a worldwide shaking up of things. John, this is not what you saw in Seattle. 
he was telling me a little earlier about um, a, um, uh, I guess, where the Mariners play ball, huh? Where the Seahawks play ball. And it's five different buildings, eight different, boy, I'm not getting anything right now, eight different buildings because it's built right on a fault line. Um, and so one of the ways they mitigate that is they build it separately so that, you know, so it has a, it can shift and move and that kind of thing. I'm not even talking about that. I'm, not, I'm talking about a worldwide shaking up of things. Now, when you read this, you might think, and probably if I originally read it, and I referenced some sections in the Hebrews too, because it talks about one of these days, there's a worldwide shaking up coming. It's yet to come in our day, right? One of these days, the Lord is going to shake everything. We won't understand all that. He's not, and I, by the way, for those of you in the oil business, okay, it has nothing to do with fracking, okay? <laughs> not a thing to do with fracking. I don't think, I think the Lord scratches his head sometimes and says, look at what they're talking about down there. Uh, there's a worldwide shakeup coming. That's really not what's being talked about here. Is it talking about what's going to happen at his return? I don't, yes, to a degree, but I think we've got to read on. Look at what verse 7 says. I will shake all the nations, and they'll come with the wealth of all the nations, and I will fill this house with my glory. I want to take you a couple of places in the New Testament, okay? I want to take you, if you would, go with me to Luke 19. Go with me to Luke 19. That's to the right, not too far. Luke 19. Look down at verse 47. Last couple of verses of Luke 19. And he was teaching. He, by the way, is capitalized there, Jesus. He was teaching daily in the temple. But the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. And they could not find anything that they might do for all the people were hanging on to every word he said. Somebody's shaking things up. Look with me at, uh, go on if you would, to the right just a little more. Go to John 2. I'll start reading at verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and money changers seated at their tables and he made a scourge of cords and drove them out of all the uh, drove them out of all the temple and with the sheep and oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables and he said to those who were selling the doves he said take these things away stop making my father's house a place of business his disciples remembered that it was written zeal for your house will consume me Jesus comes to shake things Now, I want you to catch this because I believe one of the things that Haggai is saying to these people who are a little discouraged because the work of their hands is not going to be nearly as cool as what Solomon did. In fact, they're saying, you know what? Uh, Solomon had all this silver and gold, and God says, you know what? The Persians are paying for this temple. Celebrate that. Use the money they're giving you. Use the silver that they've sent you with to pay for it. Don't worry about it because this temple... Is going to be the place where I'm going to shake all things up. 
and the glory of this temple will supersede Solomon's temple. Why? Are you catching it? Why? Because the one of whom it is said in John 1.14, we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That holy, inspired, living, breathing word of God in the flesh is going to teach in this temple. Now, before he gets to do that, um, a guy by the name of Herod, that you and I don't find did a whole lot of good things. One thing he did do, and he did it to ingratiate himself to the people, is he took this temple that we're reading about today, and he remodels it. And he make, he's trying to restore the grandeur of Solomon's temple. Doesn't ever quite get there, but the people love it. In fact, when you read the Gospels, you'll read as the disciples approach it, they look at Jesus and say, man, isn't this place incredible? And Jesus says, it's all right. He says, by the way, one of these days, in, your, in some of your lifetimes, there won't be one stone standing on another. What made the new temple glorious? Was it because the people rebuilt it with their blood, sweat, and tears? Yeah, that's part of it. What made it glorious is 500 years or so from where we are now, the Son of God is going to teach right there. And I'll shake the temple, he says. And I'll shake up. I'll begin a worldwide shakeup of all things. And you and I are part of it. Oh yeah, he's coming again to shake things up. But it began in this temple that they're beginning to build right here. What is that that, that is desired by all nations? I wrote that intentionally. I really should have written, but I, I did it intentionally. Who is it that is desired by all nations? He's going to do a lot of shaking. Now, in verse 8, uh, there's a, 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 rem, rem, uh, a remembrance that God, Solomon's temple was built using extensive amounts of silver and gold. You can go over to 1 Kings 6, 1 Kings 10, and talk about they, they almost couldn't measure it all. They bring it in, uh, and they use it to rebuild all that there. But my question is, who really owned all of those resources to start with? It wasn't the Persians. It wasn't the Israelite nation in Solomon's day, it wasn't even Solomon. The Lord owned all that. He still owns it. He owns it today. So look at verse 9. What's going to be the cause and the result of this greater glory? The silver is mine, verse 8 says, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Who is it that gives that peace? I believe, and I gave a reference or two to it, I believe that it's the one the Bible calls the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. Only in his name. Look at Matthew 12. I want to read just one more verse, and then we'll try to bring this to conclusion. <laughs> Jesus is talking here. They're comparing his preaching to Jonah, 
The queen of the south will rise up. This is uh, Matthew 12, 42. The queen of the south will rise up in this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus knew who he was. Oh, you know he did. You know he did. Now, I kind of want to bring this to conclusion in this way. The houses that the makeover team construct on the television show Extreme Makeover Home Edition are really beautiful. I'm astounded when I watch that. They'll take somewhat of a hovel and, and, you know, usually they just kind of level it while they're off in Disney World or somewhere, which I love that part of it too. But when they come back, they, they come back to high-quality workmanship, brand-new everything. Um, it, it, you and I, as we watch, can see the work being done by people who know what they're doing. They're building something that's going to last. But you and I know that those homes are not going to last. In fact, I've often wondered, given how they lived before, I've often wondered, you go back six months later, what's that place look like now? You know, did they keep up with the grass? Okay, but I don't know. It just makes me wonder. Not, those houses aren't going to last. No matter how structurally sound a house or any other building may be a completion, it can't last forever. No earthquake has to occur. Um, any structure can, can deteriorate and will deteriorate as time passes, and various parts will need to be repaired or replaced. This is bound to occur with whatever belongs to the category of, the, of those things that Hebrews 12 talks about that can and will be shaken. But, the Bible tells me also in Hebrews 12 that I am receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Not about a building. It's about a life. A life swallowed up, living within, uh, wrapped up in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, can I tell you this? You can put your complete unequivocated trust in a God who does not change. In our story for today, he recruits people to help him rebuild his house. You and I looked in a former, uh, in a former series at when he talks about this house will never, will, will last forever. He's not talking about that temple or the first one or any of them. He's talking about the kingdom that will never cease. The one that we celebrate here today and that we'll celebrate in church today. The kingdom that is reigned over by the Holy Spirit of the one who lives and reigns in your heart. Here's my question. Can you trust him? Can you trust him to know what he's doing when I don't know what he's up to? Yeah, you can. Can you trust him to know what's good for you when you're not really even sure what's good for you? Yes, you can. Can you trust him when your horse finishes fourth <laughs> in the third race of the Triple Crown? I'm not sure our friend yesterday quite got that, but yeah, I think he can. 
whatever you and I are going through. He kind of wants you to say, he kind of wants us to look at and say, you know what? The house I'm building is better than any house you've ever seen. And it's being prepared for you. Trust me. I'll get you all the way there. All right. We'll be in chapter two again next week in Haggai.